0: Well, hey, podcast pals, it's uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll here saying thank you for tuning in. I've had the honor of teaching the Bible for around 30 years. Happy to report I got my cancel card about a decade ago. Nice to get that out of the way. And now I'm back in uh, zombie mode, man. You can't kill me. And if you would do me a solid, I could really use your help. Number one, rate this podcast. Everybody gives me one in five star reviews. I need you to give me a five-star. In addition, uh, review the podcast. Tell them it's good, it's helpful, it's fun, it's authentic, it's genuine, it's down the fairway, it's all about Jesus, and uh, share it. Uh, Let your friends know. Let your family know. And if you want to trigger your enemies, let them know too. I've been triggering woke joke folks since the mid-90s, and glad to keep up the fight save the best for last. Welcome to the end of the Jude Sermon Series. If you've got a Bible, find the book of Jude in the New Testament, and we're going to go out with a bang. This one's going to be fun. How many of you are new to Arizona? You've moved here recently. Let me let you in on a little pro tip. There's no cold water, no cold water at all. It's a, if it's hot, you're like, I'm going to go jump in the pool. That is not a cold pool. That is a... Lukewarm pool, and it's not refreshing. It, it, it feels like a bath, and it feels like a bath outside. So it feels awkward. And then, So then you think, I'm gonna go in the house, that's okay, I'll take a cold shower. There is no such thing as a cold shower in the state of Arizona. Can I get an amen? Amen? Yeah. There's no, there's war, it's just warm. It's the same temperature as an old man's breath. That's the water temperature. That's all we've got, okay? How many of you about this time of year, you're really kind of sick of lukewarm water, amen? Amen. you sick of it, I'm sick of it too. So to, to use that analogy, Jesus talks about certain people being quote unquote, lukewarm. And he speaks to a church in a city called Laodicea in Revelation chapter three. And it was a lot like our town. It was a desert environment. And they lived high up on a hill. I've been there, it's in modern day Turkey. And they would have to uh, bring their water up to the top of the hill Well, it was always warm. So one of the things that people were always complaining about as we do who live in the desert, we're just kind of sick of lukewarm. And Jesus says, I'm sick of lukewarm too. And he tells this church, he says, I like hot, I like like cold, lukewarm, I spit out of my mouth. Lukewarm is Jesus' language for woke Christians, weak Christians, counterfeit Christians, progressive Christians, apostate Christians, and I use Christians, of course, in air quotes. And what he's talking about is that he is not a fan of what I will call cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is what has dominated in the United States of America. For a few hundred years, the majority of people said that they were Christians, but they didn't live like Christians. And it was sort of fashionable to go to some sort of church or pretend to have some sort of faith. Some of you grew up in homes like this. Your parents had you baptized when you were a baby and they never brought you back to church and they didn't read the Bible and they didn't pray in the house. They were just hoping that getting you wet would fix you. Uh, Some of you as well, you didn't go to church, you didn't worship God, but to make your grandma happy, you had your wedding in the church. Now you had no intention of coming back and it was just a one-time event for the photos to sort of pretend that you and God were good. This cultural Christianity has dominated our nation. And here's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing Jesus spit out of his mouth, cultural Christianity. We're seeing him spit out churchgoers and churches that are lukewarm. Those of you who love Jesus, we'll call you the ones who are hot or fired up for God. Those of you who could care less, you're ice cold, you could care less about God. The lukewarm are the ones that are the most confusing because they say they love God and they don't live for God. And this is actually what's happening right now in the Western church. I'll show this to you. Here's a survey, it's the General Social Survey from the University of Chicago. This is the the latest data. And here's what we've seen in the past few years. We have seen Jesus spitting people and churches out of his mouth. Less than 50% of Americans now have no doubt that God exists. Less than 50%. We're not even talking about Jesus, just some vague notion of God. In addition, 34% never go to church. In addition, 15% of children have no religious upbringing of any kind. What that means is nobody's ever prayed for them. Never. Nobody's ever prayed with them. No one has read them a Bible verse. No one has ever brought them to a church. Zero, zero, zero church experience. Not even Easter and Christmas will give our obligatory two-time-a-year a visit to God's house. Nothing. Nothing. And then lastly, what we're seeing as well, mainline Protestantism, which is where for a few hundred years, the lukewarm have gathered on Sundays. That is now down from 33% of the population in the 1970s to 10%. These are the churches that are in decline. They are weak because they are woke. And what they're wondering is, how come people aren't going to our church? Here's why, because God isn't. Why would I go to a place that God wouldn't visit? And what we're seeing is Jesus literally spitting entire churches and denominations out of his mouth saying, if you're going to be lukewarm rather than hot, eventually I will tire of you. And what happens now, we're seeing church attendance is down, giving is down, online viewership is down, and a lot of people are bothered by it. I'm actually really grateful for it. Because now what we get to do, we get to have hot or cold and we are no longer confused by lukewarm. Now, and what we're seeing at our church, this place is hot. I mean, not just physically, but also spiritually. And we're seeing online, it's, it, it's hot. It's hot. I mean, despite the algorithms, you know, a million people a year, a week are turning in for the sermon. What we're seeing is God's people, their hearts are getting hotter and their lives are burning brighter as the world is getting darker. And what God is doing, he's clarifying who's on Team Jesus and who's not. And the Bible tells us that this is what will happen as we enter into the last times or the end times or the last days. As we get closer to Jesus' second coming and the end of human history, there will be separation and division. The lukewarm will be spit out, the cold will be indifferent, and the hot will grow brighter. And when we hear of these words in the Bible, it reminds us that our hope is in Jesus Christ and his second coming is the only hope for planet Earth. The reason I introduce this theme is, uh, he's now going to tell us in Jude about the last days or the end times. Okay, and the Bible uses different language, last time, last days, or end times. And just to set it up, this is the time between Jesus' first and second coming. That's the last days, the last time or the end times. He came the first time to die. He comes the second time to judge. He came the first time to forgive. He comes the last time to condemn or to bless, depending upon whether you're for or against him. And so here's what Jude says, and this is Jude speaking of his brother. Again, for those of you who are new, Jude was Jesus' little brother. He worships his brother as God. He sees that the church has become lukewarm. He is very frustrated by it and he's fired up about it. So he writes a book. And here's what he says. But you must remember, beloved, Jude 17 through 19, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time or the last days or the end times, there will be five things. Scoffers following their own sinful passions. They will cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Here's what he says, God knows the end of human history. This should give you such comfort as a believer. like, where is everything going? To Jesus, amen? Amen. It's all going to Jesus. And the good news is he loves me. And so if he's gonna deal with everything and everyone, then I know that the future is in good hands. They're in God's hands. And what he says is that in these uh, last times, some things will be happening. He says, remember the predictions of the apostles and the predictions of the apostles were those chosen by Jesus to carry on his ministry and legacy after he died, rose and returned to heaven. And just as a little spoiler alert, some of what he's referring to is particularly found in two New Testament books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We start them next week. Those books are about the last days and the end times and what happens before the return of Jesus. We'll get into that next week. But what he's talking about as well as the predictions, this is prophecy. For those of you who are perhaps new to church, welcome. Thank you for letting me yell at you for an hour. I do love you and I'm just excited. So I'll tell you a little bit about the Bible. This is the word of God. It's the only perfect thing on the earth. It is the book that God wrote. So the Holy Spirit worked through human beings to write a perfect book. This book is unlike any other religious text because it has prophecy. Prophecy is God anticipating, foreshadowing, predicting, revealing the future. Here's why. God knows the future and God controls the future. Over everything that we're dealing with is a God who knows exactly what he's doing. Now, about 2,500 prophecies are in the Bible. About 2,000 of them have been fulfilled. Roughly 500 of them remain to be fulfilled. Most of the first prophecies were about the first coming of Jesus, that he'd be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, that he would live without sin, that he would die on a cross, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would rise from the dead, that he would perform miracles, that he would ascend into heaven, and that he would be the savior of the world. The Bible told us all of that hundreds, thousands of years in advance. The rest of the prophecies are about Jesus' second coming. What will the world be like before Jesus returns to judge? And we're awaiting the fulfillment of those remaining roughly 500 prophecies. But here's what he says are five signs of the last days. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Number one, scoffers. You need to know this if you really are a Christian. Your faith will be mocked. You will be opposed. The media will never be for you. The platforms will always be against you and the algorithms will never favor you. This world will mock you, scoff at you, lie about you and oppose you. I tell that not to discourage you, but for you to be prepared to deal with reality. Right? If you wake up and you go into this world or you are on social media or you're enjoying entertainment and you expect this world to love you, you need to know this. Jesus told us that the world hated him. And if we love him, it's gonna hate us. You just need to accept that. Number two, ungodly passions. And what this means is, as we get toward the last days, not only will scoffing of Christ and Christians increase, but so will temptation to sin. And what he's saying is, as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus, it'll be a lot easier to do the wrong thing than the right thing. You won't have to put in any effort to sin, but holiness, you're gonna have a fight on your hands that everything in the culture in the world is going to make sin more readily available. And let me just say, technology has absolutely helped fulfill this prophecy. If you wanna lie right now, you can do it bigger and quicker than ever. If you wanna slander, if you wanna gossip, if you wanna steal, if you wanna lust, if you wanna attack, if you wanna do evil, you can now do it globally, instantly, permanently. And how many of you right now, you've been walking with the Lord for maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and the condition of the world in which we live is deteriorating so quickly that it's rather shocking to you. The things that a few people would do in the dark seem to be the things that everyone is now doing in the light. The shame is gone, and the sin has come. Number three, divisions. There will be hot and cold. There will be those who are for Christ and those who are anti-Christ. And division literally means two visions. And so what this means is the Christian and the non-Christian, we don't see some things differently. We see everything differently. The Christian and the non-Christian agree on very little. We come from God, not evolution. We're under God's authority. We're not independent of authority. We're sinners, we're not good people. We can't fix our problem because we are the problem versus I am the hope of the world and I'm a snowflake and one of a kind and the world is blessed to have me. Right? We disagree on gender. We disagree on which bathrooms and pronouns to use. There's just quote unquote division. So the point is this, pick your team. And the point is this, you're going to get in trouble so just make the decision who or what you will get in trouble for. If there is a conflict, a division between God and the world, if you side with the world, you will have conflict with God. If you side with God, you'll have conflict with the world. The question is not, are you going to get in trouble? The question is, are you gonna get in the right, good kind of trouble? In addition, he talks about worldly people. These are people who um, love the world, uh, there was recently a poll out, I found it was amazing. Uh, the majority of, I won't say the political party, but there was a certain political party that was polled and they determined by majority that they felt that America was a moral country today. See, <laughs> so you chuckle. you'd be the other political party. So anyways, <laughs> so, but some people look at the world, they're like, this is going great. Like we, this is, man, this is really going the direction I was hoping. Those are worldly people. If you, Look at the world and don't throw up in your mouth, you're worldly, okay? That's how you know who the, that's how you know who the non-worldly people are, okay? And, and what this is, this means you are now an outlier, you're an outcast, you're a minority, you're a weirdo, you're an oddball. Just embrace it. The majority of the world, one person's excited, the rest are praying about it, hey, <laughs> Humble beginnings, don't overlook humble beginnings. Um, And so within this though, the world, it's just filled with worldly people. They're like, I like it here. This feels like home. The way we think and the way we act and the way we educate our children and the way we conduct our sexuality and the way we do our politics and our economics and our spirituality, this really fits, this feels like home to me, which means it's not home to you. It's not home to you. And the closer we get to the end, the more you long for home, and the less this feels like home. And the number five, he says that these people are, quote, devoid of the spirit. That's a massive statement. There are those that have the Holy Spirit, they're called Christians, and there are those who do not, they are called the non-Christians. And if you don't live by the power of the Holy Spirit, you only have two options. You live by the power of sinful flesh or the demonic. That's what the Bible teaches. If you live by the power of the Holy Spirit, you manifest the character of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, Galatians says. If you don't live by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, and let me just say this as well. This is why non-Christians don't understand us at all. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, you love Jesus. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, you wanna learn the Bible. When you receive, when you have the Holy Spirit, you're like, I want to sing and raise my hands. I want to talk to God. I want to learn how to pray. I want to meet some other Christians. Those people used to annoy me, and now I'm one of them. You know? And what happens when you have the Holy Spirit, let me, just, let me just go down a rabbit trail. You get a new mind. You start to think different. You get a new heart. You start to feel different. You get a new identity. You see yourself different. You have new desires. And this is the secret of the Christian life. I just feel like saying this. I say it a lot, but I just feel like saying it. I've read the Bible every day since God saved me at the age of 19. And people are like, how do you do that? I don't know. I just like it. I like reading the Bible. I don't don't read the Bible so I could preach. I preach because I like reading the Bible. For me, I like Jesus. I like prayer. I like singing. I like the Bible. I, I like to live in God's will. I like to talk to people about Jesus. And it's not because God put a gun at my head. It's because he put the spirit in my soul. Okay. And I, I like the Christian life. I tried the non-Christian life. It's not better. It's not better. And if you've, if you've, if you've not tried it, just take my word. It sucks. It just does. It's not better. So he talks about people devoid of the spirit. You're like, they don't want to learn the Bible. They don't want to pray. They don't want to know God. They don't want to repent of their sin. Yeah, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, you live differently because God makes you different. Now, if you don't live by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, your only two options are the flesh or the demonic. And the flesh is your sinful, foolish, short-sighted, addicted to the dopamine hit, very stupid series of decision-making probabilities. That's what it is. And if you live according to the flesh, you're, you're, gonna, you're just gonna make a lot of bad decisions that cause a lot of pain in your life. And you're gonna be you're like, oh, I don't know what happened. You're like, well, you spent all your money, you, know, you drank too much, you, you're on social media, yelling at people, you're filled with bitterness, um, you, know, you, you think you're a victim, like your whole world is just self-destruction. And what happens is that if you live in the flesh, it's like gravity. Eventually, if you just keep living in the flesh, then what comes is the demonic. Now the worst version of you shows up. Now you become a dangerous person. You're not just self-destructing, but you're dangerous toward others. And this is where some people never intended to cause the kind of damage that they do. And it was just living in the flesh over a long period of time. And then eventually they sunk all the way into the demonic. And what he's saying is, as the last times, as the last days or the end times approach, this is what's going to happen. Things are gonna get darker. People are going to self-destruct. The mockery of Christ will be much louder than the worship of Christ. So things will get worse around you. Here's the good news. Things will get better in you. See, because you're in the world, but the spirit is in you. If the Spirit is in you, things can get better in you even as things get worse around you. Here's what he says. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So here's what he says. It's getting worse around you, but it can get better in you. And it starts with identity. This is why we're having such a massive cultural head-on collision over identity. Who you are determines what you do. That's why Satan wants to set identity in any regard other than your relationship with God. Your, your, your primary identity is not your sexuality. It's your spirituality. It's not your body, it's your soul. And what he says is your identity is, he has a great word, what is it? Beloved. That's, that's your identity. You work from it, not for it. It's grace-based, not performance-based. It's at the starting line, not the finish line. God loves you. I told you this a few weeks ago, but this word just kept ringing in my ears um, when I first held, and now every time I hold, my grandson. Beloved is the combination of two words, be loved. You know why he's here? To be loved. That's why he's here. I mean, last night, I, I had a supernatural Incredible, wonderful moment. My, um, my son got married, I got to officiate the wedding to a wonderful gal he met serving Jesus here at church. And, uh, we were outside and we were celebrating and the reception. And, uh, and I got to hold my, I'm walking around holding my grandson at my son's wedding reception. I mean, it was one of the best moments of my whole life. Like if Jesus came back, I'd be like, can I get five minutes? I was really like, you know, like I'm, I'm really happy. This is a great moment. And do you know what I felt in that moment holding my grandson and seeing my son dance with his new bride? Love, just love. I just felt so much pure love from God through me for them. I told my grand, you know, my grandson is done? Nothing. He, 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 he doesn't have a report card, he hasn't had a performance review, he's not generated income. Um, and he doesn't have to. Because I just love him. And it, it doesn't matter what he does or doesn't do, my love for him is without condition. Okay? Now, God's a perfect father and his love for you is even purer and sweeter and deeper than the purest love you've ever known. He just loves you. And, and this, this, this is quite frankly, now for some of you, you're like, well, oh, of course he does. Well, you're the, I mean, some of you are like, I'm, I'm lovable. No, you're not. Uh, for, for those of us who are clear in our thinking, this is kind of shocking. Because right? I'll be honest with you, like I couldn't be married to me. One of us would have to kill the other one. It would just be too much, right? I am sometimes hard to love and other times I'm asleep, okay? And, and so, so to think that God just loves you, even on your worst days, your darkest moments, the, the foulest version of you, God's still smiling and blessing because his heart doesn't change. That's what's so beautiful about you being God's beloved. Though you may have a bad day, he's still having a good day. Even though you're not very lovable, he's still gonna love you. You start with that. Everybody needs some good news. Our world is filled with nothing but bad news. The good news is the Bible tells us not just what happened, but what always happens. And we don't just need to look at the Bible, we can look through it and make perfect and total sense of this weird, woke world in which we live. I've been preaching God's Word for about 30 years, And I want to let you know that Real Faith is independent, free, and a voice that is prophetic in a world that is pathetic. And I want to thank you for your partnership. We are 100% supported by ministry partners like you. You can't cancel us. We don't have advertisers. We don't have publishers. You can go pound sand because people like you pay the bills. Go to realfaith.com slash donate. Give your best gift and help me keep up the good fight. There were four words in the ancient Greek world describing love and, and love in our day is really a, a word that is abused. Eros was sensual love, passionate love, romantic love. Storge was familial love. You love your grandma, you love your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your nieces, your nephews. Phileia was friendship like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then they're killing each other there. But anyways, <laughs> um, it's Philadelphia now. And so, but it's, it's, it's loving your friends. But you know what happens is all of those kinds of love are not entirely dependable for the totality of your life. You can be romantically connected to someone, but then that relationship can end. You can have family members that love you, but all of a sudden they turn on you. You can have friends that you trust in and then they are no longer caring for you. We've all had relationships where the love flowed and then it stopped flowing. The fourth word is eros. Excuse me, the fourth word is, um, it's not eros. It is agape. Thank you, I I should have studied this. Um, (laughs) um, I meant to. Uh, It's a good thing we put this one on the internet. So um, (laughs) agape is God's love. It's a one-way affection. And what it means is you didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. And that when God commits it, he never changes it. You're beloved. Now, when you know who you are, you're beloved, then you know what to do. And he gives us a few things. Number one, build yourself up. And what he's talking about is as the end times come and we're preparing for the second coming of Jesus, and I don't know when he's coming back. I know some of you are like, I do. You scare us, okay? You scare us, you do. You do, you scare us. Okay, now I don't know when he's coming back, but I know that every day we're closer than we were yesterday. And to be honest with you, it could be any minute. And what he says is, as long as you're in the world, use the resistance to build up your faith. The key to physical training is resistance. You need to push against gravity and weight to amass strength. And now as the world gets darker and things get heavier, the Christian has to push back against those forces of evil in the world. And as you do, what you'll find is you're building yourself up. Like taking your body to the gym, you're taking your soul into the world and that resistance is going to strengthen you. That's why sometimes it is the hardest circumstances that produce the strongest believers. Number two, he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Um, Praying in the Holy Spirit means that the Spirit of God who is in you then teaches you to pray. And as Christians, we pray by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. So we pray our Father and we pray in Jesus' name. And here's the good news. As the world gets darker, you have direct access to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's coming again. You can talk to him and he'll listen to you. You can give him your burdens and he'll carry them for you. You can ask him for wisdom and he will lead and guide you. It is wonderful to know that as the world gets darker and Jesus is returning, he's listening to us and he's responding to us and he's leading us and guiding us and helping us. And so he says, pray in the spirit. And let me say this, part of praying in the spirit includes singing. So when you pray, that's you individually. When we sing, that's us corporately. And as we sing together, that's our way of praying as a church family. One of my favorite things to do is to hold Grace's hand while we sing together. That's one of my favorite things in the world because it is us agreeing this is who our God is and this is what we live for, is his glory. So when we get to the point of singing, some of you will say, well, I don't have a good voice. Me neither, but that's why we have a loud band. And, and um, see, God has auto-tune. So by the time you get to him, it's, it's, it's angelic. But you need to know this as well, that when we pray and when we sing, Those are supernatural spiritual activities that go into the presence of Jesus Christ. That right now, the Bible talks about in Revelation that prayers are like incense that ascend into his presence. When you pray, that goes to Jesus. When we sing, that goes to Jesus. And right now surrounding Jesus in the unseen realm are divine beings and departed saints, and they are singing and praying and interceding. And when we sing and pray, we join them. It's like this thin place between heaven and earth when we pray and sing in the spirit. And then he says, number three, abide in the love of God. He says, you are beloved, don't forget that. And don't walk away from that and don't doubt that and don't deny that, but abide in or remain in the love of God. He's quoting his big brother, Jesus here, John 15, 9. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, abide in my love. This is the kind of thing that any healthy relationship requires. You love each other, but you need to stay in that place of loving one another and abiding in that love. And I know some of you, you wonder, man, does God love me? Yes, he does. And sometimes those who will doubt the love of God, it's because of the pain of life. So let me just speak to that. If God loved me, why did this happen? Let me give you two things not to overlook. Satan and demons, and our evil fallen world. That ultimately, there are things that are happening that are against God. Call that sin and rebellion. Not everything that happens, God was the one who caused that to happen. Now he's good enough that he can use it for good, but God is in heaven saying, I'm gonna abuse them and I'm gonna traumatize them and I'm going to destroy them. I'm gonna give them cancer and I'm gonna give them misery. We live in a cursed, fallen world. Things are just broken. And Satan and demons are very real. And sometimes what a a Christian can do in a painful moment is they're struggling. They're like, God, what are you doing? And they, they sort of lose their peripheral vision that this is a fallen, cursed world with enemies. And what I would encourage you is this, to abide in the love of God, there are things that you're gonna need to just say, I don't understand. I don't know. I call this the mystery box. You just need a box, just write mystery on it. Certain things are like, I don't, I don't understand this. Now maybe later in life, as I read the Bible more and I grow in my faith, maybe then I'll understand. Or maybe until I see Jesus, I don't know what happened. I don't know why it happened. The Bible says that we know in part, we see in part, when Jesus returns, we will see him face to face and we will know as we are fully known. Here's the promise of the Bible. When I see Jesus, everything's gonna make sense. Until then, there's gonna be some questions. And it's okay to have those because doubts are different than unbelief. And questions are not the same as not trusting the Lord. It's just saying, I don't understand. But he says, abide in the love of God. I want you to know that God wants to get some time with you. Anyone that you love, you want time with them. This is reading your Bible, praying, singing, being in God's presence, abiding in the love of God. He then has this other great um, promise. He says to wait for God's mercy. And and the the problem is this in life, something happens and there is a gap between the need and the provision. And the waiting is the act of faith. Let me give you this. um, Faith, plus patience equals maturity. Faith, I trust you, Lord, patience. I know you're gonna show up, you're gonna deliver the mercy, you're gonna help me out, but I don't know when, that's maturity. And what he's saying is, wait for God's mercy. God does have mercy for you. Some of you, it's shown up recently. You're like, thank you, Lord, for the prime delivery. That was fast. I, for others of you, you're like, I'm still waiting for the, the, the delivery of mercy into my life. This thing I'm dealing with, it's, it's not worked itself out yet. And he talks about the waiting and that's what faith is. See, it's easy to live by sight and, and faith is I'm going to trust until I see. That's what it is. And then he closes with this. He says, live an eternal life, live an eternal life. He he says it this way, Jesus Christ, uh, he's the one who leads to eternal life. And living in eternal life is this, and this is one of the great myths of the Christian faith. The great myth of the Christian faith, one of them is that eternal life begins the day you die. It's not, it's not true. Eternal life begins the day that you meet Jesus. My eternal life started when I was a 19 year old kid in college And Jesus Christ took me from life to death and he gave me the spirit and he took me from one who was devoid of the spirit and worldly to one who was filled with the spirit and beloved. Ever since that moment, I have been living my eternal life. Okay, And so for me, it's not like I just waste my life I want to worship through my life until I get to the end. And then what I do, I go into the presence of Jesus or Jesus returns for me. You just need to know if you are beloved, those are the two options for your future. Either you go to Jesus or Jesus returns and Jesus comes for you. The good news either way, you and Jesus are together in the end. That's the good news. But we're not home yet and he's not here yet. And so we, we continue to walk into that future until we see it. Now, let me just summarize the heart of this. Um, Jude writes this letter because he's fighting for the purity of the church. He's like, those outside are cold. God's people are hot. It's the lukewarm that gotta decide, are they hot or cold? And some of you, that's you. And Jude, as we've established, it's one of the most negative and it's one of the most forceful and it's one of the most combative books of the whole Bible by percentage. And the theme is actually military. It says early in Jude to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. That's a battle term for conflict. The question is, well, why is Jude so intense? Because he loves the church. And and let me just explain this to you. I was thinking about it today as I was praying for you. Um, he's talking about the world, and he's talking about the church. And God's people need the church. I was thinking about it. it there there was—he's talking here about the second coming of Jesus and judgment. There was another time of judgment, very legendary in history. It was in the days of Noah. God decided things are getting worse. If you read uh, Genesis 6, it comes to mind. It says that uh, God was grieved in his heart because everyone was just plotting evil all the time. It was just getting worse. And so what did God do? God said, I'm gonna flood the world. I'm gonna bring judgment. and bring judgment. And he told a family, build a, Build an ark. The ark is a type for the church. As darkness and judgment and death and destruction come to the world, God's people need a proverbial ark. They need a place where they can be safe. They need a place where they can be with their family. That's called the church. That's why Jude is so intent. He's like, if the floodwaters of judgment are coming, if we don't preserve the church, there's nothing and nowhere for God's people and their beloved. And what what you need to know about the difference between the church and the world is this, that out there, you're not home. When you come to church and you're with God's people and you're in God's presence and we're singing God's praises, it should feel like home. And if you have the Holy Spirit, it should feel like a family reunion. What happens then, the lukewarm people walk in, they're like, "Uh, we don't feel very comfortable here. That's because you're worldly. We don't feel comfortable anywhere, (laughs) (laughs) like anywhere. So then they'll come in, they'll be like, well, hey, could you make some changes to belief and behavior so that we feel more comfortable? Because some of our friends out there, they don't feel they don't feel, they don't feel like it's home for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so hey, you've got you've take, you've got it, you took Disneyland, you took Target, you took the month of June. Stay in your lane. This is this is this is our family. Right? You, you took the freaking rainbow, you, 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 you took government schools, you, you took my tax money to pay for it. Just, you know, pound sand, I don't care, I'm done. You know, and they'll come in, they'll be like, well, this doesn't feel like everywhere else. It's not supposed to. These are God's people that are gonna go to heaven. And so, yeah, we have our pants on and, our, and we have two bathrooms and we read the Bible and we sing songs and you don't feel welcome because you're weird, okay? Is this clear? Like, I don't. So, if people walk in, they're like, oh, I feel uncomfortable. You're supposed to. It's called conviction. It's called, you're like, I feel judged. You are. You are by a holy and righteous God who says that you are a sinner by nature and choice. You don't feel good because you're not good. You feel judged because you're judged. You don't feel welcome because you're an enemy of God. Repent of your sin, receive Jesus, we'll baptize you, teach you a song, give you a Bible, and tell you what bathroom to use. We're here. So, just kind of in a mood. This is why Judah he's like hey the church belongs to Jesus. It's for Jesus people. It, we read the Bible, we pray, we love the Lord. We're the church, not the world. And if the world wants to take over the church, the answer is no. hell no. That's the answer. All right. Uh, back to the Bible. All right, so <laughs> So if we know that Jesus is coming or we're going to Jesus, the question is, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? You're here for a purpose. Here's what he says. Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Here's the point. How many of you, you wake up every day and you're like, ah, Jesus, would you please come back today? How many of you... Hit the snooze button. You're like, I'm giving you ten minutes. You're like, yeah. you're like, why am I still here? The world is horrible. True or false? The world is horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's just terrible. We're paying taxes for things that are going to send people to hell. That's crazy. I shouldn't have to pay for that. I should get that for free. Anyways, as we're here, it's like, God, why am I here? Are you punishing me? No, I'm sending you. See, remember when you were lost? and you were devoid of the spirit, and you were worldly. And somebody talked to you about Jesus. They gave you a Bible, they took you to church, they prayed for you. I sent them to you, I got you, now I'm sending you to someone else. We're not here because God wants us to experience misery, but because God wants us to do ministry. That's why we're here. He hasn't saved everybody yet. And so we're part of the rescue mission. And he talks about three kinds of people, doubters. And doubters are people, they really are Christians, but they have a lot of struggles. And they have a ton of questions. Some of you are doubters. You're like, okay, I believe in Jesus and I believe the Bible, but man, I got a lot of questions and I got a lot of struggles. Sometimes these people have had trauma, they've been abused, they've been through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, they've experienced tremendous injustice or evil, and sometimes they just have some really bad habits that they're struggling to kick. And what he says is, um, have mercy on those people. What he's saying is, you know what? Pray for them, encourage them, check in on them. These are people that are walking with Jesus, but their walk is a limp. They're not going very fast, but they are going north. And so as we we look at God's family, it is saying, okay, where are those who are the doubters and how do we have mercy on them? How do we pray for them and love them and encourage them? Number two, he talks about the pyromaniacs. The pyromaniacs, pyromaniac is someone who just loves to set things on fire. That's what they love to do. And he talks about these people uh, and you gotta go snatch them from the fire. And it's usually the fire that they set. (laughs) Some of you are pyromaniacs. You're like, I'm setting my health on fire. I'm setting my finances on fire. I'm setting my marriage on fire. And and then you're like, I can't believe it. I'm a victim. No, you're not. You're a pyromaniac. (laughs) You set it all on fire. Some people are determined to burn their life to the ground. Have you ever met these people? Some of them are called uncle. We all know somebody like this. And what he says is these people are not, they just keep setting their life on fire. What he says is be the firefighter. Go snatch them, get them. Like, hey, you want to go to church? I don't care. <laughs> you know, get in the car. Okay? <laughs> Hey, I bought you a Bible and I highlighted all the portions that you need immediately, right? (laughs) Um, I'm gonna shortcut this for you. Don't worry about Leviticus, we'll get there, (laughs) right? Uh, (laughs) These are the people that you follow up with them, you call them, you pray for them, you actively pursue them. Like a firefighter doesn't wait for an invitation to enter into the burning building, you're like, hey man, I'm here to help, you're not doing good. And then he speaks to all of us and to all of you saying to hate the garments stained by the flesh. Um this is a peculiar imagery but let me explain to you it's quite magnificent. It comes from an Old Testament book called Zechariah. It gets in Zechariah chapter 3 there is this imagery that I that he's he's quoting uh, Jude's a Bible guy. Um and there I'll just use this analogy and I'll I'll use it for you. So imagine that You're in the ancient world and you're wearing a a robe. Let's say it's a light colored or white robe. And then every time you sin, Satan comes up and writes your sin on the robe. Lust, addiction, adultery, lying. Every time you sin, he writes it. And you have to continually wear it. And then every time you get drunk, you know, there's a liquor stain. Every time you get high, there's a burn stain. And you wear it. And you've been wearing it your whole life. And it's, it's disgusting. At this point, it is just completely filthy. And you're wearing it everywhere you go and everybody knows, okay, that's, 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 that's your life. And in the picture, there is Jesus and he is wearing pure white, clean, sinless perfection. And what it says in the story of Zechariah is that Satan is standing there screaming at you and he is accusing and condemning and shaming you. He is naming everything you've ever done and everything you've failed to do. And you are just devastated because you know it's true. And then Jesus speaks. And Jesus walks over to you and he says, I want you to take your robe off. And he takes it off of you. And then he takes his robe off. And he puts his robe on you. And then he puts your robe on him. And he tells Satan, I'm going to die for their sin and they will no longer belong to you. And you can no longer accuse them because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is, this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took our place and put us in his place. He took our unrighteousness, gave us his righteousness. He took our death and he gave us his life. He took our rebellion against God and he gave us the righteousness of God. Um, there's a, one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible is in 2 Corinthians five twenty one. And it summarizes all of this. It says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. And what he's saying is, if Jesus has taken your old life, your old identity, your old beliefs, and your old behaviors off of you and died for it, hate that garment. Don't, don't, Don't go looking for it. You say, well, I only wear it on Friday night. Don't wear it at all. And and Paul loves this language. He uses it in the New Testament. He'll talk about what you take off and what you put on. And what he's saying is, is if Jesus has taken all of your sin and unrighteousness and filth and rebellion off of you, and he's put his clean white garment of righteousness on you, well then just keep wearing the righteousness of Christ and don't go back to your old life or your old identity. I wish I could communicate to you how much Jesus Christ loves you. But when we look to the cross, we see the love of God. And I'm just, I've been praying all week that the Holy Spirit would just just settle this in your soul. You're loved, you're forgiven, you're adopted. You are clean and pure. You're not filthy and dirty. You're not who you were. Jesus Christ is real. And then he closes with this. Here's the end of our series. He's gonna tell us that you have a great God. That's where he ends it. We've looked in at our sin. We've looked out at our world. Now we're gonna look up to our Jesus, amen? Amen. And what he's going to give us is one of the most breathtaking, awe-inspiring, heart-shattering sections in all of God's word. It's incredible. It is a glimpse into the goodness and the grandeur and the glory of God. And it's called a doxology and that's just a big fancy word for get excited and worship. So I'm going to invite the band up at this time and I'm just going to read it to you, explain it to you, and then we're going to sing and rejoice in the spirit. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And the last word is amen. Number one, your God keeps you from stumbling. I know we've all tripped. Some of you have had a rough week. Jesus Christ is going to carry you, if necessary, into your eternal homecoming. Number two, your God presents you as blameless. Satan will accuse you, but Jesus Christ is forgiven you. Jesus Christ will celebrate your homecoming. There is no condemnation in Christ. He will present you as blameless. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters that you trust in what he has done. Your God welcomes you into the presence of his glory. Your God wants to meet with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to bless you. He's not tired of you. He's not worn out by you. He's not frustrated by you. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you and he welcomes you into his presence. Your God serves you with great joy. He's not obligated, he's just good. God is not forced to do good. God wants to do good for you. You need to know that his work toward you is not a burden. It's not a guilt. It's not a duty. It's not a shame. It's a joy. Our God is good and it brings him good and good joy to do good things for you. In addition, your God is, quote, the only God. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one above Jesus. There is no one alongside of Jesus. And there never will be. He alone is the only God. And he says that your Savior is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our hope is not in elections, it's not in politicians, it's not in the economy, it's not in the stock market, it's not in interest rates, it's not in human production or provision. It is in Jesus Christ. He alone is our savior. He's the only savior. In addition, Jesus has glory. This word glory means it's jaw-dropping. It's awe-inspiring. There is something magnificent about being in the presence of something that is great and glorious and grand that makes you feel small and weak. That part of us that longs for monsoon season, that part of us that drives up to the Grand Canyon is looking for Jesus. We're looking for the one who has all all the glory, and in his presence, we are just mesmerized by his glory, and we feel small, and we feel weak, and he feels great, and he feels strong, and that's what we experience in worship. He has majesty. This is a king. Our Jesus is a king. He bows down to no one. He submits to no one. He obeys no one. And there is no one who can stop him. There is no one that can stop him when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. When he comes back to raise the saints. When he comes back to open the kingdom of God. He has all dominion, authority and majesty. And he's coming again to reclaim everyone and everything that belongs to him. Until we see him, we will trust him. Until we see him, we will sing to him. Until we see him, we will wait for him. And when we see him, we will celebrate him. So the last word is this. Amen. Amen that word means is I agree with that I trust in that I'm waiting for that I'm looking on the horizon until Jesus is coming so as God's children please stand on the count of three let's say it all together amen one two three Amen. if you're a dude you need to learn how to exercise your dominion This semester at Real Men, I'll be teaching a special series, Dominion for Dudes. If you pick up the Bible and just get a page or two in, you're going to learn that your God has dominion. You're his son. He has delegated his authority to you. You need to be a dude who stops making excuses and starts making plans to use his authority to exercise your dominion. Over your life, your body, your finances, your family, your marriage, your legacy, your soul, and your future. If you're a good man, you're going to get better. If you're a bad man, you're going to get fixed. And if you're a woke man, you're going to get triggered.